Here we go, big timer. Let's do it, G-Dub. Hold on, it gets better. Oh, God. Happy birthday okay, to this you. is cute. Happy we gotta stop this now, please. Killing me. All right, fine. Well, I mean, I had to do something because Thank I actually had something else planned. Oh, boy. But I stayed off of Twitter. I stayed off Instagram wishing you a happy birthday. You called me this morning and mentioned it, what your mom did for your birthday, and I still didn't wish you a happy birthday. Right, I was like, right. damn it. That's all right. Happy birthday, Just, JP. Thank you, G-Dub. We're, yeah. uh, Welcome to my age. Jesus, look at you this morning, would you? What do yeah. you? Can you get rid of that? Like, honestly, you look young in the face, right? Until, <laughs> yeah. you, until you do the, the – it looks like Santa Claus. Santa Claus is coming to town is what should have been playing right now. Yeah, it's a pretty full gray beard for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. I, uh, how have you been? Good? Good, 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 man. Just, uh, you know, doing stuff and – Working on future stuff. I got to return the uh, the Greg's Ride of the Races uh, Hudson Valley ah. Motorcycles Ducati. Yeah, yeah. So I got to figure that out. I think I'm going to flat track on Friday here in Charlotte. Yeah. And so I think next week I'm going to get on the BDR, which is the some off-roads, like trails and stuff that they have set um, up through West Virginia, heading towards New York, and drop the bike off beginning of next week. Oh, go see our boy Richie Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be good. Um, but you. Oh, perfect. I've been home. Okay, growing yeah. a beard, getting over my cold, <laughs> um, yeah, that type of thing. But you, let's let's talk about you because you know you spent a couple of weeks. I mean, you've been on the road for a month, and you got home last night. Yeah, you went to Europe World Superbike for a couple of races. Tell us how the trip was. Tell wow. us what you learned. So much stuff. Uh, obviously, started off at Jersey and Barber, which our final two Moto America rounds, and we're only what we're like about five months away from it starting over all over again at Daytona. Isn't it? Like yeah, the first? buddy. Yep. Only five months away, so that'll go quick. A uh, lot of hype about that over there. Like a lot of people asking me questions over in Europe. There's a lot. Yes, about the Daytona 200, and I talked to. I actually saw. I didn't get to talk to him for as long as I would have liked, and I got to reach out to him because I felt a little guilty because I had to get out and watch a session. But I talked to Scott Smart a little bit, mm. and Scott Smart was like, "Yeah, I've basically he's like, yeah, I've put my nuts on the line for this. Like his his." <laughs> Um, being able to try to make the, all the rules packages kind of as close as they possibly can. I think, you know, he's like, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble here, but hopefully he didn't <laughs> say that, but he basically was like, he was acknowledging that it's a lot of work, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that needs to be done. Uh, even though the grids over there in World Super Sport are very full. And I think the grids over here are fine as well. Um, we definitely need to see some new manufacturers have the chance to possibly get in. Um, and there's a lot of that going on over there, but you know, um, I was in Portimao for the last week and, you know, I said to you that I, I love it here more than, you know, I love obviously where I live. I love America, blah, blah, blah. I love all that. But if there's one place that I think I could probably disappear to, that would be the spot. Um, just being over there for the weekend, uh, or for the week, it's a very simple place to live. It's very nice. And by the way, like I said, also, Every American should be forced to go drive in Europe for two weeks. And learn how, <laughs> just learn how to drive. I found learn myself driving drive. around over there, and it was like just totally. There's no there. Everybody drives the exact same. Everybody. There's nobody over there that doesn't drive the exact same way. There's a ton of courtesy to each driver, and people are just so cool. Um, I drove from Faro. I drove over to Jerez, which was about two two and a half three hours, about three hour drive. 
and uh, drove down there. And then after the Jerez weekend, I drove back to Faro. I think that's where I did my podcast with you, I think, last week. And um, But being over there in that paddock was great. Um, got treated really, really nice by KRT over there, Kawasaki. Um, our boy Steve English is just an absolute like gem. Um, unreal. He took care, took care of me over there as well. And, uh, got some golf in my birthday. I played 36 holes at two really great golf courses, kind of on the coast over there, Greg. So, um, but man, there's just, there's so much motorcycle news. I got to talk to quite a few of the guys. Uh, I talked to Baz quite a bit. Um, obviously I talked to Garrett quite a bit. Um, some of the other riders as well, obviously, but those are the two guys that we know over here. And um, there's just a lot going on. Uh, World Superbike's in a good place right now, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially after reading social media, even, you know, one of the cool things for MotoGP was they were here in the U.S. And so yeah. the time zone was completely different. Mm-hmm. I think it's seven hours. It's either six six hours, I think, from Portugal to Texas. So a lot of the GP riders across the board, Moto3, Moto2, and so on, watched World Superbike. And everybody just made comments about how incredibly awesome the racing was last yeah. weekend. It was well. It's it funny was because there's really good. It's what's really funny is that when you're over in that paddock, you hear all the kind of specific talks or rumors or whatever you want to talk about in relation to that paddock, right? Mm-hmm. And it is amazing how many of the guys are like, "Well, that this guy or that guy from MotoGP, he'll be here within a year or two. And, mm. and there's some heavy hitters on that name on that list of guys that really feel that this guy or that guy is going to get booted out of MotoGP and he'll be here and. You know, I think that World Superbike right now, when you look at the level of competition, you look at the level of machinery, bikes, things like that, um, the racing was great all weekend in Portimao. And every class across the board, the racing was really, really good. The track is just spectacular. I mean, um, Portimao itself is one that it's another one of those Gregs that I got to ride. Hopefully, I'll get the opportunity to do that um, maybe next year. Go over there. Um, I was hit on social media from handful of people of like jay if you if this trip ever happens where you get to go right over there please don't leave me out type of thing you know <laughs> yeah um because there's there's you know that's i went over there a little bit to look at some of that stuff as well and i mean it looks like it a track great. you would really like yeah because it's great if you go back and look at you know those tracks that you you've done i mean you did really well at a lot of tracks but specifically like a mid Ohio or something that goes up and down like that, where you got to have the bike leaned over. And I was, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, man, this is a JP track. hundred percent. I said to Garrett, I said, um, Portimao reminds me, Greg, of a very fast Sonoma. Hmm. Makes sense. All those up and downs, but faster. And obviously it's a lot safer mm-hmm. than, than Sonoma. Uh, and, and the, Track surface is amazing at Portima. All the riders were just talking about how great the repave was. Yeah. A lot like Coda. And, um, <laughs> uh, you mean the opposite of Coda? Oh is that what you're saying? Oh my God. I, I was trying to figure out how much I could say with, you know, I did a tweet <clears throat> that basically said, are they handing out, uh, are they handing out kidney belts? <laughs> this was me. And I was, that was the middle of the first free practice one on Friday. I was over in Portugal and I was watching FP1 from Coda and I, it was like, I just felt awful. And I'm like, how bad I, I you know, I don't want to obviously just shit bag our, our racetracks over here, but it's like, I, I just knew it was coming. I knew the storm was coming and, you know, watching that race overseas and, and watching that race being an American in front of all those guys over there. And they're all asking me about Coda, like, what are they, what is going on? I'm like, yeah, well, 
You know, I felt like I was under the gun. Like they were all coming at me, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a shame that we don't have more FIM homologated type tracks that are available in the U S and I know that, you know, part of the issue is obviously the clay that the racetrack right. is built on and it shifts. But I was reading an article that really talked about how they're having a same, a similar, or they had a similar problem at Silverstone and they were interviewing a guy who actually fixed that problem at Silverstone. Now that problem at Silverstone is only a couple years removed since being fixed, but, but we've you known know, Dakota has been brutal for, I mean, when they flashed up that the fastest lap of the race was still set in 2014. 17. Kinda, well, it depends on what depends on which. Well, yeah, fastest yeah. lap. They said Marquez went like uh 204 something in the race in 2014, like race lap record. Mm-hmm. And uh, unless I, unless I saw that wrong, but that's what I thought I saw. And I'm like, we're seven years removed and we can't, they're, they're getting within a second of it now, but uh, technology well, te- is a the telling sign is what I think formula one's coming in two weeks and there's no way that formula one's going to get along. If those bumps are in the same places, the formula one cars are going to go <clears> over. <throat> yeah. And, you know, I know that there was a meeting of riders who got together and yeah. they basically said like, Hey, look, we don't want to come back here unless the things repave. The problem is it's only six months away. Yeah. And it's not like Coda's dripping with money or anything, especially after COVID. So Correct. It's correct. It's, it's going to be very interesting, you know, it's to, going to, to be really yeah. interesting, but Portimao but, itself was like, just so good, uh, all the way around, <clears> like just the area driving to the track every day. My, you know, the Portimao is basically, you know, right on the ocean, right on the, you know, seaside community, um, little town of Lagos right next to it. Amazing. That's where I stayed before. There's just, it's a good vibe down there and all the way across the Algarve, I think they call it from, basically where you're at there all the way um, down the coastline into Spain. Um, it's just a beautiful area. It's just mm-hmm. a great area. So you wake up there pretty in a pretty good mood every day. All right. We'll talk more about it because yep. this is presented by bike911.com. And did you know that bike911.com has been helping its clients with exceptional representation since 1995? Well, I know Jason, you do, but because yep. look, the guy who runs the show, Alex Asante, We've known him for many years. He's helped a lot of people like ourselves. He's recovered over $100 million in jury verdicts and settlements for riders just like you. If you ever need legal counsel, and we hope you never do, but if you do, check out bike911.com and get up with Alex Asante. Tell him Jason Pridmore told you to go. So bike911.com, that's a website, Jason. So like, you know, sometimes you could type in www. Ah, You know what I mean? Yeah, that kind of thing. So in this one, obviously, we're going to talk about some Mariah News. Jason's return to the U.S. We've already started talking about that World Superbike um, at Portimao, and of course MotoGP at Coda. And there's plenty of controversy over this one. Did you get to see the Moto3 race, or at least the Moto3 incident, the accident? I did, and and okay. I and I, you and I have not talked about any of this stuff. No, with the Moto3 and World Supersport. Um, but but you know, I know that it's something that you and I can definitely discuss, and. It's like when you and I don't discuss things and we save it for the broadcast, it's kind of fun because I already know <laughs> I already know what you're going to say when I bring up a couple questions to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can get to that when it comes to it uh, for sure. So, yeah. Okay. Well, look, if you want to support the channel, go ahead and get our Patreon, patreon.com slash Greg's Garage TV. There's a link in the description. Also, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, it's Greg's Garage TV on YouTube. You can do that. But let's get right into it, Jay, because I'm sure this one's going to be a little lengthy and a lot to talk about. We'll get right into the news presented by Arai. 
Yep, yep. Well, you mentioned you talked to Loris Baz, so why don't we talk about Loris Baz as yep. the first news item? Because Loris Baz, who was coming off a great weekend in World Superbike, filling in for Chaz Davis. And by the way, it is Davis, for those that are curious. Um, it was a great two weekends, really, for Baz. That We're going to talk about what happened after race number two yeah, in yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless... GP1.com has reported early this morning that BMW has offered Baz a ride on that satellite team for 2022 with special treatment to get official parts and stuff like that. Um, he would match the equipment of Scott Redding, who will be obviously on BMW next year, and Michael Vandemark. What are your thoughts on that? I did reach out to Baz um, like maybe an hour ago. I sent him a voice like text over WhatsApp. I unsurprisingly haven't heard from him. I wouldn't expect him to get back with me about it, but... Well, he's on his way to go race World Endurance right now in uh, Czech. They're racing at most. I think it's the season finale for them. And uh, on what manufacturer? He's going to ride the Ducati there. Yeah. Okay. He's with Depunier and Paralari. If you remember, Paralari was the kid that rode Super Sport for the GMT 94 team uh, the last couple of years. And so they're riding a Ducati at uh, there at uh, at, at most. most. Six. It's a six-hour race. It's um, an eight-hour race, I think. Isn't it? Is it eight? Yeah, pretty sure. Right. I, I looked it up. It's yeah. eight. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, but dude, you saw him wincing in pain. I mean, he was, he even posted about it. He's in the hospital four weeks ago, you know, and, and now he's going to race endurance. What's wrong with him? Well, no, honestly, I'll be, I'll be fair with you. Uh, as much as I talked to him, I talked to him a ton over the weekend at Jerez. I spoke with him a ton. In fact, I saw him after his um, press interviews up in the press, in the media area on Sunday after the races. Um, I went up to the media area. Uh, where Johnny and Redding and and Baz, it's amazing how much media those guys have to do. Like you, we we take it for granted over here, mm-hmm. but uh, when you see the superbike stuff setting in the background, all three of the riders had like four different areas they had to go specifically to talk to journalists and this and that after the race. Um, and so they did the top three, and then as those three guys left, fourth place was coming in, fifth place was coming in, sixth place was coming in, and. Those guys were all getting interviewed as well. So, but I had a chance to talk with Loris after that. We talked for probably ten minutes, and he just, uh, Greg, he never even mentioned his wrist to me, not once in the two weeks I was over there. Yeah, but like I was telling, so, like we were texting. You were like yeah. in turn five or whatever, and when he was on the box, I mean, he's just holding his hand in the air, like like kind of like on his chest, just trying to elevate it. Yeah, and he finally did a post about it because I could see it. I mean, he was in winter, yeah. just gets off the bike. And no. for, I, he did everything, you know, if you look at the Moto America weekend, he would ice it immediately after. And he wasn't right. doing that, but I, I guarantee you he wanted to. And I'm just, I mean, it shows you how much the guy really wants to ride. Yeah. No, you know? he's, hey man, look, when he came over here last year, before he showed up, I paid pretty close attention to when he was riding that Tenkate R1. And I felt like this is a guy that's capable of winning world superbike races. Um, and he was coming to America and he hasn't lost that level. You know, I, no. he, made, he made jokes to me. He literally made jokes to me again about I could finish closer to Johnny Ray and stuff over here than I can Jake Gagne over there. And and we know, I mean, how great are look, Jake Gagne, Cam Peterson, Bobby Fong, obviously Matthew Skultz, across the board, our riders are really, really good. And when you it'd be great if we had <clears throat> it'd be great if we had ten or twelve guys up in the front, <clears throat> but we've got a solid four, five, six guys at the front each weekend um, over here. And they all had to be really stoked to see how well Loris represented himself and, you know, kind of Moto America over there, the guys that raced with him. But 
I, I flat asked him straight up. I'm like, what is the difference between what you have over there and what you have over here? And he says to me, he says, Jason, honestly, he's like, this bike is so good. He said that um, when they went to Jerez, Greg, he did not change a thing on the bike. He told mm. me straight up. He's like, I got on it Friday morning. I had never been on the bike before. We touched nothing. I'm like, wow. And then he said at Portimao, he says, we changed a couple clicks here and a couple clicks there. That was it. Like we didn't, we did not change anything. And he was his typical workhorse self where, you know, how he goes up there and puts those laps in. Yeah. He was putting in a ton of laps. Um, he was getting used to what the bike was like. They, they, um, at Portimao, they didn't bring one of the tires, the SCX that they bring it to a lot of the other ones. Um, so riders had to, they had, they had to do some longer runs and this and that. So basically, uh, Loris, the level that he's at is world-class level. I mean, it is the guy put it on the podium three times, um, with a little asterisk next to one of those. Um, but so I mean, what do you think, what do you think about a BMW offer? Cause I, I have my I, opinions about it. Well, <clears throat> there's a couple things. Uh, one of the things that was kind of funny was, in the dry of that bike right now, it needs to make a step. It has to make a step because the BMW, when you watch it over race distance, they can kind of be there for a lap or two, but then there's a performance level that drops off quite a bit. I think that when, like for somebody like Scott Redding, I, I watched him pretty closely over these two weekends and Redding was really impressive. Another guy who works really hard, puts in the laps, and some of the question marks coming up about the way Top Rack passes is another topic I'd love to talk to you about a little bit um, because there's a trend there that, that, that was brought up to me when I was over there that will make a lot of sense to you, I think, and to our listeners when you hear us talk about it. But um, And I was like, well, next year he won't have to worry about Top Rack and some of those passes because he's going to get on this BMW. And I would love nothing more than to see Scott Redding battling for podiums each weekend. But I also rate Michael Vandemark a lot. And unless it's wet, like we saw in Sunday's Super Bowl race, the BMW needs to make that jump. It needs to make a step. I think the bike is good. I talked to Sean Muir a lot when I was over there, um, the, the guy who runs that team. Um, inadvertently, we sat next to each other in breakfast one morning in Spain. And he had a bad ankle. He was on crutches. And I said, Tib Fib. And he's like, yeah. And so he was great talking to him. Um, had you met him before? I had not. Wow. I had not. So, and then I was walking through the paddock at Portimao and he goes, Jason, how's the golf? You know, cause he knew I was going golfing for that week. We were going to go hit some good spots. So he, he, he was great. Um, but the BMW has to make a step. Otherwise it's a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth place, whatever bike that you see it right now. But, hmm. but what do I think about Baz? I think that right now BMW is spending money. And if he can, if he, he has shown the level of rider that he is. I mean, he's shown it. Yeah, but and- would you would you if you were Baz break away from Ducati from the sense that the the problem with Ducati is is that the dangling carrot that they have is that GP. You but know what I mean? But it's a dangling carrot. I mean, Ducati's come straight out. I think it's hilarious and said our bike isn't really made for big riders. Puts a different kind of load on the tire. That's why they've gone back to Batista. And I laugh because I'm like, well, you just had a couple six footers put it second and third all weekend long. Mm-hmm. So I, I've never heard a manufacturer talk about, oh, our bike is built for a certain size rider. And if I'm Loris Baz, I'm looking at the writing on the wall and I'm saying, okay, I don't think the MotoGP dangling carrot is even there anymore for anybody that you're not going to go from World Superbike to MotoGP. They're yeah, not interested. I don't see it either. No. They're not interested. They're taking guys like Marini and Bastianini and, 
and Jorge Martin. They're taking guys right out of Moto2 and putting them on those satellite Ducatis, and that's where that's going to come from. Um, and the thing is, is if, again, if you're Loris, what motivation do you have to stick around on a Ducati possibly? Uh, Redding's getting paid double what he would have got paid at Ducati uh, to, to make that switch to BMW. And I'm saying, yeah, but where, where, Greg, if, if you have the potential of winning races, like we know Redding does, Redding to me, in my opinion, if he could have, uh, and we don't know how all the negotiations break down, should have stayed where he was because he'll win. He's going to win seven, eight races a year, probably five to seven races. How many has he won this year? Redding probably four. No, nah, more than that, I think. Has he? Well, anyways, yeah. whatever his win bonuses are, um, and I think I think being on that Ducati and this and that, but BMW apparently has paid quite a bit more money to have uh, Redding join them next year. Mm-hmm. So he's taking the money up front, but I don't know how many bonuses he's going to get. So for somebody like Loris, who knows what his bonuses even were for finishing top three for you know the Go 11 team. But if he goes to BMW... He's got a guy. He's got two other guys that are the same size as him, don't they? Think yeah. of think of the amount of setup that those guys will really between Loris and Scott Redding and um, and uh, and Vandermark. Mm-hmm. You got three guys all the same size, and if they work together, they could definitely help make that bike maybe make a step. That's a good point. It's a good point. It's definitely something he should consider. Well, he's now, gonna. Ha- he has to consider it. Well, all right, let's take it a step further then. Let's say Loris Baz ends up staying in World Superbike, which we know is where he really wants to be. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be home in Europe, you know, and, and doing that whole deal? Um, who do you put on the Warhorse HSBK yada, yada, yada bike in the States? Well, I haven't even thought about that yet because I just haven't even really given that an idea. I, Loris loved it over here, by the way. He loves it. I mean, and when I talked to him specifically about changing or moving or and he's like, well, right now I'm just committed to going back over there. Cause he's kind of got unfinished business. Um, he actually cracked me up because he said, if you watch the start on Sunday's second race, he was shuffled back to seventh or eighth and they'd had a malfunction of the lights when, after they did the warm up lap for the first one. And I think yeah, I, I even text, I think I texted you, didn't I? I'm like, Hey, are you watching this? Cause mm-hmm. I was on one part of the track and they all came by me and I couldn't see what had happened. And the lights had failed. So he took it easy for those first two laps because he's like, I remember what happened to me at Brainerd and I didn't, I didn't want to go. Hey, uh-huh, Loris. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I didn't want to go. Hey, Loris. I don't think that was a front tire, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, the thing, the thing was, is that, um, he took his time a little bit, but Greg, he had pace. Like he had legitimate podium pace, even though we saw Ray crash out of two rounds, top rat crash out of the other to kind of open up that third place podium spot. Baz actually had really good pace because even in the dry, those guys were not just walking away. Yeah. And we're going to get to more of that because there's some stuff to talk about for sure. But let's move on to our other topic, which is going to be some Moto American news. 2021 Twins Cup champ and JP favorite Caleb DeCarroll is heading over to Vallelunga in Italy this weekend. He'll be competing in the final round of the Aprilia RS660 Trophy Cup race. And from what Sean Vice from Moto America reported, Caleb will be teamed with Tommaso Mar- Marcone, who was here in the U.S. He got what two pole positions in one race when he when the Italian was here. So, what do you think about Caleb getting the opportunity to go race in Italy on his uh, Aprilia? Now they're spec bikes, Jay, right? But they yeah. do. I mean, they have an SC Project pipe. They have Olean's. You know, they have Brembo. They have like it's a it's a nice spec bike, but it's a Trophy Cup race. Valunga is an interesting place too. I actually tested there. Um, 
way back in the day. I tested there in 08 and it's an interesting track. It's right around Rome, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just out of Rome and it's a, it's a cool place. So uh, it's going to be really interesting, Greg, to see how that whole thing turns out for Caleb. I think depending on the amount of track time and all that stuff, it would be interesting to see because I don't know anything about that championship over there and, and like how much time they actually get and this and that. But um, you know me, I love Caleb. I think that the thing about Caleb is he's so under the radar because of his work ethic. He kind of, you don't ever hear him really talking about things and, you know, uh, uh, on social media, he's just kind of a workhorse thanking his team and doing this and that. He doesn't project himself. Let's just put it that way. So I think if he, he's got to go over there and just put those laps in, put the work in like he always does. Um, but I mean, you wouldn't think that he'd be anywhere, but up front at the end, do they get to do one race or are they doing two, Greg? That's a good question. You know yeah. what? I was going to pull it up while you were talking because yeah. I do have to say that Sean Bice seems to sometimes have like a crystal ball and he kind of knows what people are, are asking and thinking about. Yep. So he did post, I know in the article I breezed through it and he, I thought he posted like how much track time. So it looks like it's one race. So Thursday, they're going to get two free practice sessions. I'm not sure of the time. Friday, they get two official free practice sessions. And on Saturday, two qualifying sessions. And then Sunday's the race. Okay. So he should get, you know, depending on Plenty how much time, time each session. Like, he huh? should, yeah, it sounds like. He, normally, these trophy cup races and stuff, at some of the things I've attended before, can be, you know, like off to the side. So you yeah. have maybe 30-minute sessions. Yeah. But even still, if there were 30-minute sessions, he's looking at three hours of of track time before a race. And it could be a lot more than that. So, yeah, no, I think he'll be okay. And I know he's but already Jay, the, over the there. Thing but, is, yeah. The thing is, he'll be fine. As a guy who's ridden tracks around the world, yeah. as, as, as have I ridden tracks, not, you know, yeah, that's how good. You're finally getting the terminology right. Ridden. No, tracks. because I'm saying I raced a couple internationally, oh, but I had to ruin it a lot you? more because I was doing ruin it. tests and things mm-hmm. like that, you know? Like Phillip Island. Yeah, I wrote Phillip Island years you're, before you even. You're a big tester. Those engineers, man, they're waiting your for your input, you G-Dub, aren't they? Huh? Huh? Those engineers, they're really waiting for your input when you test, huh? It was a press launch. The bike it's was like, already built. It's like if you eat two dozen donuts a day, this is what your bike does. Well, see, and- now you're getting to the last little topic, which is how about Mark Marquez eating a donut on the uh, a donut on the podium? Yeah, huh? I, a point, Mark. I knew Way to get on the G Dub program. Yeah, we were so far ahead of the whole donut thing. Jet Lawrence, what we were doing yeah. that with, you know, with uh, Battle of the Olds. Wasn't that in winter. Atlanta? Didn't didn't somebody you started getting donuts in Atlanta from people too? Didn't you? Mm-hmm. Weren't we yeah. somewhere? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We got a, I got a couple dozen this year. I saw a yeah. donut truck, like it just had donuts written all over it. Did I send you that? I did, no, didn't I? No, you didn't. I didn't? No. Oh, see, I blow it because if my intentions are my intentions are always good in the sense of, oh, there's a donut truck. First thing I think about is Greg White. So I've got to send this picture. That's just horrible. Or put it on Instagram. Anyway, and, my point is you know, that I didn't get to finish, all right? As yeah, we get sorry. sidetracked Go on. on donuts, yes. is the more tracks you ride, and this is for all you track day people too. The more tracks you ride, the better you're going to be as a rider. Don't be afraid to go ride tracks. So Jay, I was uh, I was online are, are, playing. Are you thinking about anybody? In, are you thinking about anybody in particular there? Well, there was a guy I was just talking to. This guy Thomas, who lives up in Virginia. Now I met him online playing video games. Okay, so Josh Heron and he connected, I guess, a while back, and they play. So Heron sees me online, and he says, "Jump onto the game." So we're playing, and he bounced out because he's got the kid now, Griffin, and had to feed him and all this stuff. And so Thomas and I were talking and he rides for three years, Jason, he's been riding at one racetrack, which is NC bike. It's not really a racetrack, but it's a track. And he finally went down and rode 
um, Carolina Motorsports Park like two yep. weeks, like a couple weeks ago. Then he went back to NC Bike, and he was seven seconds a lap faster than yeah. he's ever gone, comfortably faster. Crazy how that is, isn't it? And he said just because it's opened up his world, like just a different track. And he's like, man, after three years at the one facility, going to a different place was awesome. And he was nervous and he was all the things, but that's what I'm saying. So somebody like Caleb, who now has a, a couple of years on the same racetracks, I think this this opportunity for him to be nothing him. but help him out. Yeah, it's going to be great. Be, I think it's going to be, awesome. be great. Now, he Jay, October great. 1st came and went. And so with all that stuff, Supercross, <laughs> Motocross contracts all revolve around that time frame. And so it was announced on the 1st, pretty much like five hours into it, that Eli Tomac is going to Yamaha from Kawasaki. Kawasaki will replace him with Jason Anderson. What are your thoughts? Oh, nice truck. Oh, I love that donut. You like what I sent you, huh? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of old news. We've kind of talked about the fact that these two guys uh, were doing what they were doing next year. I think it's cool. Look, it was. it's always weird because you're like, man, I can't imagine Eli Tomac in anything but I know. Kawasaki. And then you see the Instagram stuff that he put out. Looks great on the Yamaha. And I, I don't know why, but I could I could imagine already Jason Anderson being on the Kawasaki. I could already see that in my brain. Mm. So, but it'll be interesting to see. It's really I think that the the thing I'm most curious on is Jason Anderson. You know, he set out most of this year with an injury last six months or whatever. Um, he's got plenty of time now to get himself race ready before Anaheim won. Uh, sometimes a change of scenery is good. Um, we already knew Tom. We already know Tom. We already know what to expect with Tomac. Yep, he's going to be great. He's going to be great. Um, maybe a change of scenery will do him as do him well as well. Um, but for Jason Anderson, I think this. Wow, I mean, just just seems like the a great opportunity, doesn't it? So it, yeah, it does. And, so and the guy's we'll fast. I mean, he's he's a national champion. He definitely can race, and he's kind of like a Varsha. You know, he's had moments of brilliance, and and then other moments not, and. I mean, it takes a lot to be consistent in motocross, supercross. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you look back at guys that have done it like McGrath and Chad Reed and, yeah. you know, um, Ricky Carmichael and, you know, the consistent performance, even even um, looking at Ryan Dungey, you know, Dungey, yep. Dungey did it without flashing. He didn't do it flashy, but he certainly did it. Yep. And it, it, it does take a special person to put in the grind in a supercross season. Yep. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish all those guys the best. Yeah, so, I think it's going to be going to be interesting to see what other moves are coming up. So, yep. Well, um, Jason, that's yeah. your news presented by Arai. And since I totally forgot to do the read, I'm going to. do I was it wondering because anyway. when you were throwing down the music, I'm like, all right, I'm reading here. This it was so weird. Like, I'm like, this this feels really strange. Antimicrobials. To me. Let's talk about them. Oh, you want to do antimicrobials? I can mm -hmm. do that. Nolan mm -hmm. Lampkin. Here we go. Hey Jay, did you know <laughs> that all Arai helmets are lined with an antimicrobial material? Yeah, the interior liner. Gives you odor resistance, dirt resistance, and those antimicrobials that you love so yep. much. You know, you can stay fresher, longer, and enjoy a comfortable ride in the latest Arai. So check out AraiAmericas.com. Pick what you like. Head down to your local dealer for fitment. And while you're there, patronize your local dealer, people. Grab yourself an Arai helmet right from your local dealer. Ride away safer than when you rode into the dealership. AraiAmericas.com. All right. So that's it. So that's, yeah. Okay. What did I put? Really, you should do the next segment. I don't know why I have the names. Well, I don't know why you did that either, but I, no. you know, um, obviously being over there overseas, like you said, Greg, got to watch Coda. So I was over there and it was so, so different because over here, you know, you got to be up at, you know, five in the morning. I got to watch free practice three 
I got to watch free practice four. You saw how much that helped me this weekend in fantasy. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> I didn't even look at your fantasy. Oh result. my God. Why would you? <laughs> I, I, I think it was Skip or Chuck or one of them put up, a, you know, because we're in this little email group and it says, is Jason even trying? That was I, so funny. I put fair play. I deserve that. You know, I'm horrendous. Um, and no, then your but, boss, though, Chuck Axlin said, who's Jason? Yeah, that, that was, was very nice part. of him. It was yeah. very nice of him to, to say that. Uh, mm-hmm. But he's right. I feel like I should just pay off all bets for everybody uh, <laughs> in that because I'm so horrendous at it. But MotoGP was in Austin. And I think the saddest part for me about that was that the track was getting more play than the actual racing. But um, the, the racing sucked. I mean, honestly, if I'm being fair, <laughs> I'm over there watching it. Yeah. And I've got a really funny story about that. Um, but Marquez goes on and wins by 4.6 seconds, and it didn't look that close. Quattararo finishes second in a race that he deemed a victory for him. And I think just now it's fully cemented that, you know, this is the guy that's going to win the championship. I it, it um, He's he's riding amazing. Quattararo ends up second. And, I mean, the thing that you got to look at there, Greg, is the next Yamaha was Dovey in 13th, I believe. Oof. And he was 20 seconds behind Quattararo. So 25. Oh, 20 seconds. Yeah. Behind yeah, Quart- so, yeah. So Quattararo ends up second. Bagnaya <clears throat> ends up third. Eight and a half seconds back. I mean, then we had another three seconds to Alex Renz, who him and Jorge Martin, him and Jorge Martin were kind of the two closest guys, I guess, at the end of the race. Martin, I mean, again, we got stupid penalty involved with Martin where he runs off the track, loses all the time. And then they give him a long lap penalty. Anyways, I'm just like, are you guys kidding right now? Like just stop with it. Bastianini ends up sixth after Mir and Miller get together. And, um, you know, I know you're going to ask me again, everybody gets involved and, uh, and they give Mir, um, you know, they did what they did to him. Did Jack get a penalty at Doha when he ran into the side of Mir? I don't know. No, dude. I don't believe he did. But anyways, doesn't matter. Um, well, that killed me in fantasy, by the way. So I'm all pissed off about that. I lost a point and a half. I would have tied for the whatever. Anyway, go ahead. Cute. Yeah. Like let me let me explain to you about fantasy. Um, so Miller ends up seventh, fourteen seven. You know, fourteen point seven seconds back. He's ten seconds behind his teammate. Um, Mir gets eighth. Brad Binder ninth, who showed promise at the beginning, but talked about how his bike kind of fell off. From about halfway through, Paul Espargo ends up 10th, 20 seconds behind Marquez uh, on, on the exact same bike. Oliveira, Alex Marquez, Dovi, Marini, and oh, and uh, Rossi. Yeah, and Rossi end up kind of filling out the, the end there. Rossi gets a point, um, which, yeah, he ends up getting a point. I think when you look at it, the race was boring. I think Alicia Spargo can hardly wait to get back to Coda. He's probably just oh my god, what a weekend to forget. Super guy. pumped to get there. <laughs> Zarco yeah. was really your only. I mean, Alicia didn't finish, but Zarco, of course, I had him. Um, he ends up crashing in turn. I think it was turn one, didn't he, at the top of the hill? So he ends up falling and not finishing. So we had two non non finishers. I you know I don't know what to say, Greg. The racing. Like I said, the racing sucked. Everything MotoGP. I mean, look, it has the, become. The, it just, yeah, it was exactly. no good this weekend. I mean, the top ten finish within twenty seconds of each other. That hasn't happened too much. They've yeah. always, they've been a lot closer than that this year. A lot, barring a couple of like rain race or whatever. But that's the thing. It, there's not much really to extrapolate from this weekend in MotoGP. Wow, I think. nice word, nice pull. Thanks a lot. I think the thing is, is you you have bikes that have been 
on smooth tracks. They come to the United States with a setup. They go out and they're so stiff. And of course, they make MotoGP bikes stiff. Now you encounter all these bumps that shouldn't have been there. They're new bumps and they made some mistakes. Paving is what I heard and all this kind of stuff. And then it became, it's this place is too dangerous to race. A lot, a few of the riders held on to that. Jack Miller was the one who stood up and said, hey, whatever, I like it, let's go. You know, and and we've been down that road before. Joliet, the race that never happened back in, I don't even know what year that was, 98 or something. Yeah. Comes to mind, right? When when basically most riders, with the exception of three who were dirt trackers, said, nah, we'll race this hellhole. Um, but once yeah, they got some- Yeah, a little different sus- scenario, but yeah, I yeah, agree. A little different scenario for sure. But once they got the bikes lifted, like- the engineers went to work and figured some solutions out to make those bikes better for sure and to handle the bumps a little bit better. The complaints definitely dropped off because most people kind of reconciled with themselves like, hey, we got we're race not here. getting this race canceled. Yeah, yeah, we're going racing. Well, they came beyond- such a, it came such a long, long way to be there. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think the only real story, honestly, to come out of this thing, I mean, I get Mark Marquez, he wins again. I mean, I knew he was going to win. We talked about it last week's podcast. I said he was slow playing in the press. I turboed him because I thought he was going to yeah, win and, and I got, I got some good points, but I think the biggest story for me coming out of there is Quadraro and the fact that he finished his second yeah. and loses five points to who cares. And yeah. really, you know, like everybody's saying, and I agree with it, he's got one hand on the championship now. He's well, got now one he hand on the trophy. Yeah. I, I just couldn't believe there's only, well, I said, I couldn't believe it. What is there three rounds to go now? So they got Mizano, Portimao and, and wherever he, I think he can win the championship in the next race. So he can. Um, when you look at it, he's just been, He's been amazing at some of the tracks that we've generally seen him not do well at, or even after last year when he fell off midway through the season, there's none of that this year. He's very motivated. He's done a really nice job. He's got a good team around him doing what he's doing. So yeah, it's good. All right, let's move. <laughs> exactly what am I getting flipped off for right now? I didn't know. I thought maybe you were looking at results and because you only got one screen and you didn't No, no, see no. Me. I saw, I see what you were doing there. Oh, I can right. see it. I, you know, Greg, here's my question, right? Go ahead. If if you if if you own a racetrack and you know people were complaining about it as bad as they were when they were here last, mm-hmm. and you've made no changes, aren't you scared to have the event run there? Like I would be super in my guts. I'd be like, oh my god, these guys are going to come back here now, and we've not done anything to the track. It's the same, and I am now like I would be freaking out. Well. <clears throat> I don't know how you sign on the dotted line. I don't know, I don't know what part you're talking about. Like, so well, the track so, surface has been shit there for forever. Yes, but they did make some changes in some corners at the beginning of 20 or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like they were when we were there for the to test, it was awful. On. I know, but they tried to put some band aids on. I understand it. Like, the issue, you, the issue it'd be comes so sick. We 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 have we and and I was thinking about this. Like when you look at America, you think that we would have the ability to. At some point in the in in time, we would have had the ability to have an unreal racetrack. MotoGP bikes now are too big, too fast, too everything to go to Laguna Seca. My opinion. That's just my opinion. Well, I don't, it's the FIM's opinion I, as well. I, I don't think I don't think that that's a good MotoGP track anymore. Laguna Seca just isn't. Now, no. the fans would disagree because they're like, "Oh, we go to Laguna, it's great." Every single person in that paddock, everybody that I said, "Oh man, it'd be great if we could get you guys over in America." Everybody said without question. Laguna Seca is their favorite place to go in the world. Like Laguna is like, 
and I'm sitting there going, Portimao is my favorite, right? Or Australia. <laughs> or Australia. Yeah, but you live in California. Mm-hmm. But Think it's, about but it's, it's all the, the mystique behind California. The three that get brought one. up over there, they're like, we love going to Phillip Island. We love going to Portimao. We love, love, love going to Laguna Seca. Great. Got it. Yeah. It'd be so sick if we could actually do a, a great, great, unbelievable racetrack here somewhere in America um, where you could have an event that's because even if it, even if they repaved Coda and make it great, it's, it's just not that great of a racetrack. So you want me to you want me to give you the answer behind all that stuff? That's just come up with about eight hundred million and build one. No, it's a little more complicated than that. Oh, okay. The majority, right. the majority, we've talked about this before, but the majority of the tracks on the MotoGP calendar are owned by municipalities or have municipality input. Meaning, uh, Catalonia is a good example, right? Like in that region, it's funded by the government, so they repave it every so many years. If there's a problem, they look at the overall model and they say, "Okay, MotoGP brings in X amount of millions of dollars into our economy. We can totally see." how investing in the racetrack and the surface and having MotoGP stay here is important and all that kind of stuff, right? Yep, yep. That's that's kind of a thing. When you look at a racetrack like Coda, you know, <clears throat> privately owned racetrack, they have a couple major events there. They have so much property. They have so much invested in infrastructure. I can't even imagine what the bill is to turn the lights on. But racetracks in the United States are different. They're yep. revenue generating properties now. You know, the racetracks aren't built and run. They're built initially, but they're not run off of passion anymore. They're not run as a deficit. These racetracks now are being purchased by people to make money. How do we make money? Right. Look at what we saw at Road America. Road America is a perfect example. We show up there. They have these digital signs. They're like, hey, and, and I don't remember exactly what day it was, but like come out Wednesdays, we have a track walk right. where, you're, you know, for fitness, you can come from... It's about in the excuse me corporate events and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the biggest issues is is how much impact does MotoGP have on the racetrack's economy? Yeah. It sure looked like there were tons of people there. It sure looked like there was a lot of revenue being generated. But mm. how much revenue did they generate in 2020? How's the the track? Are they in good shape in terms of like finances? Can well, everybody's afford- going to be in that? position everybody's in that position from you know from covid side of things everybody's been in that position yeah but if but if you have if you have a a nation or you have a province or a state or whatever that's helping fund it yep and coda has been funded by texas in the past yep into the tune of a hundred plus million dollars a year but i know a couple years ago if you remember they missed like 120 thousand 125 million sorry dollars worth of funding because they forgot to send in a a plan, remember, like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, a plan for sexual, whatever, you know, like something I never thought about how when an event comes to town, like motor, like Formula One, how all of a sudden all these hookers, you know, and, 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 and sex workers, I should say, to be more politically correct. Wow, you're come, really into the side of things. Good for you, G Dub. Well, I Go just, on. I heard about it, you know, uh-huh. in conversations yep. with from a friend. <laughs> no, I know right. nothing about yeah. it. But uh-huh. what I'm saying is, is that the track, one of the things they have to do is come up with a plan on how to combat that because. As you get piles of people in, apparently people have needs. I don't know. And so they didn't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Keep talking, Greg. This is good stuff. Anyway, look, the issue is (laughs) there's a bunch of issues that are all wrapped up with the Mm -hmm. racetrack, with the finances, and simply saying, okay, we're going to repave this track and make everyone happy. It's not viable in the United States. And so the other issue is, is 
property values. And, you know, you, Jason, you've been around long enough to know there have been racetracks that are built around no communities. Communities have grown to the racetrack. People have shut the racetrack down because they're Correct. noisy. Yeah, it sucks. You know, so yep. for a MotoGP there's, specifically. There's a, there's a lot of different things and a lot of like a lot of different reasons of why we. But I mean, Coda was a great example of a, an opportunity to build a really great, great racetrack. And I mean, look, facility wise and all that. And there are some good sections of the track. Don't don't get me wrong. There are some cool sections at Coda. But but for the majority of it, it's uh, from a rider's perspective, talking with the people that I know that have ridden there. They might not come out and say it flat out you know, on anything public that whatever, I'm not a fan. It's not a great place. It just isn't. And it's too bad because there was a lot of money thrown at that place. And you know, they've got, I mean, how many first gear turns there? Five. I don't know, dude. Five first gear turns. Well, that's the thing about a GP bike. You know, I think that they, after the first year they went, they started changing those to a second gear, like the transmission, pull the transmission out and redo some gears. Yeah. So, but, but anyway, anyways, second, yeah. Let's talk Moto Two. Moto Two. I mean, I don't really have a lot to add about the Moto GP race because it just wasn't no, no, that no. It wasn't to me. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, me um, Moto Two. At least we had you know a couple Americans. I, I'm not really sure, and I haven't got a chance to reach out to Joe. I don't know exactly what's going on with Joe right now, Roberts. Um, obviously he's struggling. I, I I don't know what the reason is. Joe Roberts to me shouldn't be 32 seconds back because no. I know how good he is, and so there's something going on there for him, and you know. I know people are probably going to say, well, he's this, he's that. No, I mean, we've seen this guy run up front. We've seen him put it on pole mm-hmm. within the last year. So there's something going on. Not sure what it is, but we did have Cam Bobier, And I think this was kind of a breakout weekend for Cam. Yeah, people are going to say, well, it's his home race. He should. You got to remember, home race meaning that Cam's raced there a few times, but he's not really got to see that winning front of the pack pace. Um, when we look at the race results, Raul Fernandez just continues to impress. He trims the lead down, Greg, I believe, to nine points. I don't have that pulled up, but I think it's a nine-point deficit now that he's got to Remy Gardner, who made a very uncharacteristic mistake in one of those slow left-hand corners like we were just talking about. Um, We see Gardner pushing just a little too hard. You can see the frustration of him not being able to get that bike restarted. Obviously, it didn't look like the bike was damaged that much, but Gardner ends up getting a DNF. So with that now, Raul Fernandez has put himself in the shop window for this championship again. Um, A really impressive ride, I have to say, by DeGi Antonio. I was literally talking to somebody on Saturday about how DeGi Antonio has done nothing since announcing he's going to be coming to MotoGP next year. He's done nothing. And he has a really good ride at Coda, only 1.7 seconds back at the end. He beats Bedzecki, who ends up third. Augusto Fernandez, who is, I think, moving to that Red Bull KTM team next year with um, uh, with Acosta. He ends up finishing fourth. He's put together some really good runs at the end of the year. And then Cam ends up finishing fifth, 1.3 seconds behind Fernandez. And I think for Cam, you know, Greg, he took the lead going into turn one off the start, didn't he? And ran a little bit wide. Those guys got by him. He ended up fighting. There was a, there was a point in that race where, if you remember, um, he ends up passing DiGi Antonio. And DJ Antonio kind of stuffs him back. And was they were just allowing that gap to get kind of bigger and bigger at the front. And I felt his frustration for a few there for Cam. And then once he settled down, I think even during the race, we were texting back and forth. And we're like, oh, man, he's probably going to end up seventh. But he just kept grinding those middle laps out, three quarters of the way laps also, and ends up finishing fifth. I thought it was a, I thought it was a great ride for him. Agreed. He was in third. He lost the front bigger than shit in one of those tight he sections. Did, yes. Saved it. That cost him a couple spots. He settled into fifth, and then he rode, and I, I thought it was great. Yep. They talked to – I don't know if you saw, they talked to Hopkins before the race, and he said, I think he's got fifth place pace. 
Yep. I think Cameron actually had third place pace, but he just made, he, he lost that ground. And then, you know, once you lose the front like that, I still have to think. Like oh, if it you, plays it, in your brain. It, it has to, especially, especially in that when corner. you've, well, not only that, but especially like the just, year he's had. Just, yeah. Like losing the front in a lot of places because yeah. some of the crashes he's had, they look kind of like when he lost the front in that, right? It, it's like, oh, he's online. Everything looks good. All of a sudden the front's tucking underneath him. And it's like, oh, and it's like, those are little warning signs that sometimes take you a couple laps to kind of recatch your breath. And you just can't give anything up to those guys at the front. Now, the one thing I will say, this is something to keep in mind. People say, well, it's Cameron's home race. And I understand (laughs) that. Yeah. He's comfortable at Coda. He, he's, you know, we know that he doesn't like Coda as a track itself. It's not his favorite American track, but it's a track he's familiar with. So when you say breakout race, I actually think you might be right. Because if you remember correctly, they're going back to Mizano next weekend. They were at Mizano yep. already the weekend before or whatever, a couple of weeks before they went to Coda. So that he gets to return. And then the next race after that is is Portugal. They were at Portugal, what, round two? Round Yes. Right? Yep. Round Early three. Sorry, year, yeah. round three. So And he's I been to Valencia. Was, and then they go to Valencia. So yeah. What I am saying is, is that Cam has an opportunity uncharacteristically during a MotoGP season to revisit tracks that he's already been to. Yeah. So we're going to see if this breakout weekend really has to do with him being comfortable and not having to learn the track yeah. piled on top of all the other things that he's got to deal with. He's going to go back home to Spain or whatever his place in Spain. He goes back to a track he's already been to this year in terms of probably where to stay, what food to eat, all those little details that can take away from your program. So I'm really looking forward to the next two race weekends to see if what happened at Coda was just a home track American thing, yeah. because the formula looks like it's in place for him to continue, you know, to, to, to stay up front. Well, I can't tell you, like, again, I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but when you get to actually see the pace of the leaders, when you actually are there mm-hmm. and you see the pace, now he kind of knows what he's got to do. He's got a race under his belt where he saw the leader just up the road from him, the whole race, that leader, because I was, I was really, it does something to a rider's psyche where at the end of the race, you can still see the winner, you know, like, yeah. okay, I was five seconds back. He'll go back and analyze and realize, okay, I made this many mistakes or I lost the front here. There was, there was probably any, probably one to 10 incidents in that race that cost him a little bit of time here or cost him a little bit of time there. The infighting at the beginning with a couple of guys racing in and around, um, you were, were, were what cost him some time. So out of the five seconds back that he was, what laps did he lose those biggest chunks of time? Was there a second on this lap and, you know, four tenths on this lap and where was it? And you got to learn to just try to limit those mistakes, realize that you have the pace. And I think the fact that he did that, I think will, will play itself out large for him. And even, you know, this, this is the kind of race that could catapult a guy like Cam with the experience that he's has. Um, back up to the front, even going into 2022. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be good. I think also having Sean Dylan Kelly there for the weekend, he was there all weekend long, got to see how the team work, got to see what was going on. Yakov was there too. Did you see? She was in the the box. Yeah. I saw Kayla was there in the box on race day. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of positives that Cam will be able to take from that. I think that if he didn't notice it already, he's, he can see all the love that he's, that he's got from people over here, uh, you know, from the, uh, on the fans and all Dude, that. The crowds, really the crowds were great. I mean, yes. they definitely knew Cameron. And I was, I was actually texting with Wayne Rainey about that during that time, because I was like, dude, you know, Moto America has done such a good job. Cameron has built a great reputation. Yeah. 
you know, and really it all started with Moto America. That's when he won his first championship when Moto America started in 2015. So, you know, that stuff is, is telling, it's a telling sign that people are watching, that they're paying attention yeah. because, you know, Cam had those five years to build and, or six years to build and people were paying attention and the crowd just were, was erupting for him. And they knew how important it was for him to finish P5. Yeah. And I think the most important thing for Cameron finishing P5 isn't the points, isn't the fact that now he's got a stat that he finishes in the top five. He needed a race for confidence. He yep. did. And he did lose the front and he saved it. And so hopefully that, that's got to tell him something. <laughs> yeah, so it's that, great. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking forward to the next couple of races in Moto2 to, to keep an eye on that championship, but to also keep an eye on Cameron and what he does. And hopefully Joe Roberts finds something over yep. the next couple of race weekends before he peels off into, you know, into the winter break well, and I, gives I, him a little bit of confidence. I'll tell you, I've spent a lot of time around Joe during the offseason. I say a lot of time. I've seen him at Chuck Wall a few times, and I had the pleasure of getting to ride with him a little bit last year. Um, he just had a stock Ducati out there, and so got to spend some laps, got to watch him, got to ride with him. He's such a good dude, man. Like, And, and I want to see him do well as – I mean, I want to see him do great. And, um, yeah, just – I'm interested. I'm not, <clears throat> I might reach out to him just to find out like, Hey, what's going on? Cause mm-hmm. I know he's so much better than that. So there's obviously something that he's not feeling. Uh, you don't just, you don't just lose it like that. Greg in moto three, the big, <clears throat> big talking points this year. And this is, you know, again, you and I could probably do a podcast on this, but for me watching moto three this weekend, Guevara ends up winning after a double red flag situation. And uh, we'll just go through the results real quick, but it was Guevara, okay. Fagio, McPhee ends up top three. Masia Anchu, uh, Alcoba, Bender, Acosta finishes eighth. Suzuki, Mino, and Nepa. For those of you that watched um, and probably either turned the TV off or didn't watch after the after they red flagged it the second time and saw the results, results were pretty weird because they had a red flag situation um, after the kind of the first thing. Philip Salich, who I don't even know if – I guess he's okay. We don't hear about it because there was a much bigger accident um, that happened at the restart. Um of this race where Dennis Anshu moved over a little bit. It looked like Aminio that started a chain reaction where we saw Acosta flying through the air, which is just a, it's sickening thing. If you are watching it uh, and you see kind of what happens there, but uh, Anshu moves over on Alcoba. I think it was Alcoba. Alcoba ends up falling over. He falls right in front of Mino and Acosta and those guys hit bikes and bodies were flying everywhere. It was, a, it was a scary scene, obviously. And then, Instead of those three laps really meaning anything before that accident, the second one, they revert back to the initial five laps that they had, or however many laps it was. I think it was more than five. But And they go back to Guevara, who ends up winning. And I don't know if you saw the little, like, four-year-old, like, as they say in England, he he threw all the toys out of the... out of the. Oh, yeah, buggy, whatever, the, you know? the, the toy I mean, box, yeah. I mean, he, he literally... He got so mad that when he went to kick something, he fell over. And he's, I mean, it was like, it was actually kind of embarrassing. I'm surprised there's not a lot of memes out about it. But they give, they end up going back and giving Guevara, whose bike actually broke. It looked like a shock or something had failed, Greg. Yeah, it looked like that was it. The shock um, failed. And basically, he just is just losing his mind. And, um, and they end up giving the win to him. So, but really, the big talking point again is, there's another big accident in in kind of the kids' classes, if you want to call that. Everybody was very, very thankful that they dodged what looked like was going to be a horrendous maybe outcome of three kids being launched or two of them being launched in the air. And two um, possibly being run over, yeah. But Acosta, I mean, he flew 
a long, long way. And then it even kind of went off the inside Armco barrier and this and that. I mean, it was it was an ugly scene. Um, so Dennis Anju has gotten a two-race suspension for his basically starting that incident, for swerving on the straightaway. Yeah. This is an instance where I actually applaud race control for getting involved and saying, you know what? <clears throat> Jay, you and I have talked about this endlessly, about what happens in Moto3, about some of the riding that goes on. Not on the race, necessarily, because I think some of the riding in the race is, you know, what are you going to do when you're in that kind of a tight pack? But the the um, the touring and qualifying oh. and all the ruckus. And, you know, your your solution, I think, is still the solution that no one has stumbled on. You know, no, nobody who who runs Moto America, and I'm talking to you, Freddie Spencer, or Moto GP, Freddie Spencer, listens to the podcast because I think the solution is, f- like you're saying, find the teams. You know, find the team owner. Team owner will crack down on his rider. And you know, I don't know if you watch, and I, I I guarantee you, you probably don't know anything about this. But on Saturday morning, qualifying for the the World Supersport Championship, uh, the 300 World Supersport overseas. Uh, at Portimao, sorry. I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching TV. And every one of them, Greg, go out at the same time, okay, for qualifying. Ridiculous. And every one of them, listen, <clears throat> every one of them are sitting up, riding off the race. They're all just sitting there looking at each other. And I'm like, I'm losing my mind. I'm in KRT's uh, suite and I'm watching the TV. I'm like, they need to do something. Like, they need to just, next thing you know, the session gets red flagged. Did you hear about this? No. Oh, this is great. The session gets red flagged. There were no accidents. They race direction pulled all these kids into the pits and stopped them, parked them all in the same spot. And the FIM officials were down there just reading them the riot act. Like, <laughs> like, like telling them this is, this has got to stop. They literally stopped the session to rail on all these kids. And I'm like, they should have stopped the session and parked them. Yeah. They should have parked them because yep. it, that would have sent a much bigger message of, of this, all this stuff. It's just craziness. It's absolutely crazy because Greg, if you're, and I've said this a million times, it's going to be an oxymoron, but let's just say you're on a fast lap, Greg. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Funny pants. If you see four five, six guys just sitting up on the edge of the racetrack, no matter what, it takes a 10th or two away from you because you sees that for just a second. And it, even if, even if those guys don't get in your way, it's it's literally like seeing if you're on the freeway and you're doing a hundred and uh, you see a big truck or something getting on the freeway or you see something it just gets your attention for a second and I, I applauded race control for that as well like but I would have literally said hey qualifying results are from where they're going to be Friday good luck with you good luck for all of you you know because if there was one or two riders that wasn't doing that it was the whole I would have read but if there was one yeah. or two yeah. I would have red flagged everybody except those two kids and said you know what go out and do your laps. Yeah, because you're going to be sitting on pole. Yeah, if there were if there were guys that were legitimately rolled out of the pits and got up to speed right away, but all these guys rolled out of the pit lane and all of them sat there as turning all of ridiculous, them ridiculous. There turning back, looking at each other, riding into the green, riding off the edges of the racetrack, just riding around, and then they put their heads down coming out of the second to last corner. But here's my here's where I'm going with this, okay, Greg, and, and you and I, how many podcasts have we done now? Two years, two plus years worth of this stuff or something. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, all right? You and I, from day one of this podcast, have talked about how tight the racing is, how close it is, how insane it is. I mean, I remember watching races where if one of us had watched it and the other one hadn't, it's like, you got to go watch this before we do the podcast because there's 22 guys going for the lead at Mugello. Yeah. And 
and you sit there and you hold your breath. And now, and now, and this is very reactionary about how everybody does things. Now we're starting to see, unfortunately, we've had three kids lost this year in these smaller classes. A lot of it is because they've gotten run over, um, all mm-hmm. three of them, in fact. And the problem that you have is there's no easy solution to this. But the racing to me isn't any different than it has been for the last two years, three years, five years for that. Moto3 has been insane for three to four to five years. When do you ever really see runaway winners? You don't really see it. Um, and four, and f- four, four races out of 18, maybe. Yeah, right? like exactly. Yeah. So this is a problem that's been happening, but we've just gotten away with it for so many years. And, and so then you run into the, and there's some guys overseas that get really, really like, uh, what's the word I want to use colorful about this situation. And they're really concerned about these kids as are all of us, but there's no real easy situation. In fact, this last weekend at, um, in Portimao, they added two more riders to the grid because they were wild card riders. So like it took the number from like 43 to 45 bikes or something like that, or 42 to 44 bikes. Um, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the easy situation is because when you have all these guys as close as they possibly are always, um, you run the risk of happening what happened. But, but then on the other side of it, Everybody's quick to talk about how great the racing is and how close it is. But now it seems like all these writers or TV personalities, they're all talking about how dangerous the classes are. But the classes, the classes, I, have they have they changed or something? No, I mean, look, since we started racing, you and I, well, you started before I did, but let's just say we started in the early 90s. There's always been talk about close racing. That's, that's what draws people in, close racing, close racing, close yeah. racing. It's not true because people watch Formula One and there's no close racing in Formula One. And I think that that philosophy has gotten a hold of people over the last 10 years specifically where we have to have bikes equal. We have to have spec classes. We have to have all these things to showcase rider talent. And that has just bunched everyone up. You know, the amount of money that factories are throwing at GP bikes. I mean, we don't see CRTs anymore and we don't see two or three or four year old uh, uncompetitive MotoGP bikes. You yep. see a 2019 Ducati yep. updated yep. with, you know, as, as, as has been pointed out by, you know, the management at Ducati Corsa has been updated. That's a podium finishing capable yeah, motorcycle. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So I think that we are in a situation, we meaning the racing community are in a situation that we've created ourselves based off of the perception that the only way we can be successful is to have close racing. Yeah, And I think that that is a misconception because people don't root for racing. They don't root for manufacturers. Some do, but most people, they, they root for people, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And my biggest issue with say world super sport 300 is who the hell do I root for Jay? Like it's great. There's such a pack of people that who is a standout? You know, it's part of the reason why, you know, Anna Carrasco, I root for Anna because She's a standout. She's a world champion and she's been through stuff like, and the reason that is because there's a story behind her. You know, I watch her social media. I understand her back. I understand the pain she's been through and that type of stuff. But you know. Yeah. If I asked you who won the championship last year, would you know? No. Jeffrey Boyce. And I wouldn't have known that either. And then, and then Huertas, Huertas wins it this year. Um, But Greg, if you watch the first race on Saturday with one lap to go, when they're coming to what would be the last lap, 
they're coming out of three corners from the end and the leader's like looking back because he doesn't want to lead going across start finish line because he knows that there's 12 bikes behind him that are all going to draft him down the front straightaway. So his chances of winning, making up eight spots on the last lap are pretty, are pretty slim. So, but the thing I'm getting at is that everybody's got their arms up over there about, Oh, we got to change everything. But the racing has been this way. We could have had these incidents just as easily three, four, five, six years ago because the There's racing no has been as close. And, that, and it's that's been just, like this. It's and that's been two like and a half this. years of doing this podcast. But we know that Moto3 has even been closer than that for, for a couple of years. Because everybody's that. talked about it. But now we've had these incidents. And you know the whole purpose mm-hmm. of these junior uh, classes was where are the next champions going to come from? Like we've got to mm-hmm. we've got to bring these guys along. We've got to and so now like the big thing is we should raise the age to sixteen, raise the age to eighteen, whatever, whatever raise the aging does. But I'm going to tell you right now, we are so lucky that we get to go to Daytona again. I'm excited about going to Daytona, but you know what I'm going to be doing for the first eighteen laps of that race? I'm going to be holding my breath because that's the closest it will be for those first eighteen laps until those pit stops happen. Yeah. And I'm also hoping that the discrepancy that we've seen in the years past at Daytona, because this is the stuff I think about the difference in lap times between the leading group that could possibly be at Daytona this next year with the amount of people and that we're hearing could possibly be doing this race. You could have 15 to 16 to 17 riders up in that lead group pretty easily. If we end up getting a number of riders. Now, the biggest problem I have is all these guys that do Daytona and that's the only race they do a year. They do one race a year and they got to go do the Daytona 200 because of the history of the Daytona 200. These guys that are circulating out there at seven, eight, nine seconds off the pace. What I don't want to see is a group of 18 guys or 15 guys or 12 guys for that matter, all drafting and redrafting each other and coming up on a guy who's eight seconds a lap slower, um, who's on his 2012 or 2009 you know, F4, yeah. whatever, you know what R6, I mean? R6, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to see, I, that's, that is where we've got to be a little bit careful, I think, in that What regard. are we talking about times at Daytona? 154s-ish, Yeah, I don't right? know anymore. I just don't know. I think it's quicker, but yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure, G-Dub. One to 600. So let's say, yeah. one, let's just say for argument's sake, it's 150s, okay? So you're talking about what, 115 seconds times... And I'm sure it's like, it's, it's, but to me, when I watch these races. Yeah, but Jay, if you do 110% qualifying time, I mean, you're talking about someone at Daytona who has the possibility of being 10 to 12 seconds slower that can still make the grid. If I I watch this last year, the 200 this year for me, when, if you remember, Brandon Posh was catching SDK at the end of that race, Mm -hmm. those two guys were passing people so much faster on the bankings, so much quicker that it looked like a thousand to a 600. And I was hold, like, the, I literally watched the last six laps, eight laps of that race, whatever it was, holding my breath, like, oh my God, like they're going by these guys. But who are you holding so your breath for? Much. This is what I'm curious. Everybody. You, you sure? Because I think you're holding it for the leaders where I'm holding it for the person getting lapped because oh, I've no. been in that position yeah, before. No, but it's everybody. Where you get Be, plus. I'm, 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 I'm hoping that. You know, that, you know what it reminds me of? Hmm. Remember uh, with Weir Endurance, they used to run like the thousands with the four hundreds and everything else. Four hundreds and stuff, yeah, six hundred, yeah, yeah. But twins, but we're but we're past. I mean, look, we've got. That's what I'm saying. We're past that. Those are lessons learned at this point. You know, like you can't can't do that. Even World Endurance was like that, right? But but you know, Greg, a lot of times in World Endurance or World Endurance and in Endurance, Weir back when I did Weir, you know, you had you had you had pretty big grids like the twenty four hour Willow. Um. You had separation. 
but the thing is, is the separation is there's, there's, it's, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but it's when, when you All right, have, well, let, let's, let's, let's get yeah. down to something that makes sense. Okay. Let's talk about you and Ben Spees at Daytona 750 Supersport. You mm-hmm. guys ended up on the last lap cruising around, looking at each other, waiting for someone to make a move. Yeah. But that's only possible because you guys had a huge lead on third place, right? Well, it was just the two of us and we weren't really lapping anybody. And right. And so the thing was is that is it is you know, it's it's an interesting thing that you say that, but it's like I basically we, we came out of turn five and rolled up on the bank and and Ben just rolled the throttle off and was looking at me <laughs> up he was just staring at me up on the banking, uh looking back at me. And um Thank God he was 16 years old and inexperienced. I'm literally looking at a photo of that day as I talk to you. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but thank goodness he was he was 16 years old and inexperienced. And I, I was lucky enough to win that. Um, but the thing is, is that now it's not just one guy. Like now when you look back, there's 15 guys behind you. The That's lead what I'm group, talking about. The yeah. lead group in Sunday's race, yeah. I told you I was sitting in the media center, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm what they, they have TVs all over the place. The lead group, the last kid on one of the laps, the only reason I know him is because he had my number and he's an Australian kid who I was lucky enough to meet, but he was 4.1 seconds off and he was the last in the lead group. There was 22 riders in the lead group. The next group back was like three seconds. So you have to imagine if anything happens on the front straightaway with that lead group of 21 or 22, the next group of 15 riders was right behind that group, only two seconds. Yeah. So if you're the seventh, eighth place rider in that second group and something happens up in front of you, everybody's just going to be scrambling out of the way. But my point is how this is, it's no different. It, the racing right now to me isn't really any different than it was two, three, four, five, six years ago. It's been, it's been like that. I, I guarantee if you go back and you look at a World Supersport 300 race from three years ago, you're going to find a race where there's 18 people in the league group, all ducking and diving and chopping each other's noses off. Well, I'll tell you where racing's different now because racing's been the same since I started racing. The difference is they literally have choked off these racetracks because all of a sudden green paint makes a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, we, we we could talk about this all day, but yeah. I think let let why don't we move on to World Superbike? Yeah. yeah, no, I just think I knew this would be something that you and I would kind of dig our teeth into, but yeah, because I, and, it's, and I don't know, I don't, I don't know what the solution is. Like people are like, oh, and that's really the problem, Jason, is that a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon of having clicks because they're reporting on this stuff in outrage, but nobody's coming up with solutions. You know, it's kind of like someone, it's, it's, a, it's like someone no who bitches solution. and moans about politics all the time. Because I have friends like this, I'm sure you do too. And eventually I just say, listen, if you're so concerned about this and everything's so bad, why don't you run, run for office? I don't care if it's alderman or like run for office. Are you going to sit and complain about something you have no effect over the rest of your life? Or are you actually going to do something about it? But that's just more how I feel about stuff in life in general. It's like, (laughs) man, just do something about it. You know, but anyway, there's no easy solution. Um, something needs to be tried then. And and you know what, Jay, how is it? And I'm not going to get off into the weeds in this conversation, but how is it that people these days tend to be more accountable for words that come out of their mouth than they do for their actions? Like I'm at this point now, if these young, these younger riders in these classes are, are Cadillac and around, they're touring, pull their license. And the original, the original idea was, is is to say that Dennis Anjou missing out on two races is a blow to his team, right? Correct. It may not be taking money out of his pocket, but definitely he's a rider that gets paid or whatever it is. He's he's a sponsorship opportunity. He's this and that. There's some cost associated with not having him at the racetrack. And 
suspending him for two might be the start of a solution to at least get these riders under control in the situation that we are talking about, about, you know, cruising around and making it dangerous. The race is another situation. Well, but there's so, a lot of other dangerous stuff that happens before we get to the race. So let me let me explain something to you that I heard murmurings about when I was over there because and this makes a lot of sense if you really start to think about this. And like I don't necessarily want to I, I mean I, I essentially what we are what I'm doing here is I'm isolating somebody because when you look at things, there is a lot of talking about how much of an amazing rider Top Rack is. He is. Everybody across the board just thinks he's incredible. Um, and he is, he, he's talent, got so much bike control. It's yep. unreal, but there is something that he does. And I, and I'm not talking about one or two people. I'm talking about, there's a handful of people that talk to you about what top rack does is he, he gets up underneath you and he kind of stands his bike upright once he's up underneath you. So he'll be tipping in and could, t- could continue to tip in, but instead of doing that, he kind of stands his bike upright and that's, when the closeness of like catching somebody's bars and this and that. So there is a talking point there where someone says that people are saying that there's a, I don't want to, I I, I got to use the word dirty because it's kind of like a dirty way of racing. Okay. Um, it's kind of like one of those things where uh, they're like, he doesn't need to actually stand the bike up right that little bit extra, but he does to kind of push you out of the way and you go, it's like, he's intimidating. He's okay, trying to so, intimidate you, but, but, so here's the thing is Dennis uh, can on you 600 super sport. Mm-hmm. If you watch him, he does the same thing. He will be the guy that comes down the straightaway up alongside of you, drafts you and then moves over on you while you, while you're breaking. So in other words, you know, he's, he's drafted up alongside you. He pulls just in front of you and then moves over on you. So now you're on the brakes trying to avoid him. Okay, to the point where he didn't need to move over. He could have just stayed straight. So then you see this situation with Dennis on you it, it over the weekend where he drafts by a guy and moves over in front of him, clips his front wheel, and this catastrophic accident happens. There's one guy that's been teaching them all, you know, that's very, very, very high level guy that rode the exact same way. Kenneth Safoglu rode the exact same way of there's a, I don't know if you want to call it an intimidation factor or what it might be, but the one common denominator there is Kennan and Kennan rode the exact same way. I remember Kennan doing stuff like this to Josh Hayes, talking with Josh, Josh fed it back to him and Ken, Kennan didn't like it. I remember the conversation with Josh about this at Portimao because Josh did the exact same thing to Kennan that Kennan had done to Josh and Josh didn't put up with it. Well, Kennan got all fired up and pissed off at Josh about it. Josh thought it was great. So the thing mm-hmm. is, is that, is that when you look at it, there's a common denominator that a couple of these guys are being taught to ride this certain way. And this morning, I am reading about some accusations that have come out against Top Rack, and Top Rack says, "This is how I ride. This is how we practice." He exactly, this is exactly what he said. This is how we practice. So it, there's a practice there of, you know, there's a difference between gaining track position. And gaining track position and then moving over on the guy around you. Racing is racing, but that's, I think, race direction taking the stance. And I hate the fact that race direction is involved with so much. But when you you can't be moving over on guys, especially when you're pinned wide open down the straightaway. Well, the problem is, is that you, when you set the tone like that, okay, this isn't life. This isn't someone who's working at a cubicle next to you where you can stop and take the high ground. This is racing. Yep. And, you know, there are occasions when 
a filthy move needs to be answered with a filthy move. You know, if, if people get get it pushed around like that, that are strong willed people, yep. and this riding is feels like it's designed to intimidate someone, well, why not just give it back to a bully, right? Like, and, and that's kind of <clears throat> the situation that I see where people are kind of forced into this situation. What I find is really ironic is Yamaha's stance on the whole situation where they're shitting all over Garrett Gerloff for the things that he's done, but yet Toprak is in there banging and barring people around as well. And I'm like, mm. Yeah, that's another discussion I think we can have another time because Toprak does it. I always say, Greg, that if you've got a guy that shows as much bike control as Toprak does, okay, um, you'd much rather have a guy doing that to you that has a ton of bike control than a guy doing it to you that might be a little bit more sketchy as far as bike control. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not saying that Garrett doesn't have bike control. I'm not saying that. No, no, no. Or, or but there have been, just but there's a couple times in those three incidents where he didn't have bike control. You, the, the example I could use is, is, you know, when you're at a track day and people are always complaining about the fastest guy that, you know, let's say you get like a, let's say that you have a, you know, a whoever, a Heron or one of these guys at a track day that goes by somebody ultra fast and that person comes in and goes, oh my God, Josh Heron, just pass me this quick. I'd much rather have Josh Heron out there passing me fast because- Josh Heron has bike control. He knows how to right. ride a motorcycle. Then mm-hmm. some other guy that thinks he's Josh Heron that doesn't have the bike control passing me that close. I'm a lot more uncomfortable with that. It's It kind of goes back to who are the guys doing the complaining. And again, being over there in the paddock, Greg, I saw a whole nother perspective. I've said it so many times that you and I do this podcast every week and we're not we're not in the paddocks. We're not at MotoGP paddocks. We're right. not in World Superbike paddocks. So there's a whole nother level of discussion out there that you and I don't ever get to hear because we're not there. And being over there for a couple of weekends, I got to be there and listen to some of the other sides of things that maybe you and I don't even get to see or hear. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it made a lot of sense. So when you look at like what Scott Redding's talking about, um, he he came out with a great thing. He's like, if, if I was Top Rack's crew, I wouldn't even feel bad about that fender falling off because he's gone and ran into guys during the race. That fender could have gotten jarred off by him running into the back of somebody. You know what I mean? Or good point. Touch yep. somebody's leg or all it takes is, is for him to get into the side of somebody just a little bit and touching a hard part of a motorcycle and, and maybe breaking the fender or something like that to where now the fender becomes um, something that could, could do exactly what we saw. We don't just see fenders falling off like that. You don't just Mm-mm. see that. So was there damage to that thing prior to it coming off? We'll never know. Yamaha would never admit that. But when you sit there and let's say you're the mechanic working on the bike and you're taking the heat for a fender falling off, maybe it didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, maybe the fact that he ran into somebody and broke the fender, compromised the fender, and then the thing falls off. There's a there's an argument there that you have to discuss. And Redding basically said, if I was his mechanics, I wouldn't take blame for that because I watched him run into Johnny here or there or me or whoever multiple times during the race. Yeah, Scott's right. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I, it's a great argument. It is a really, really strong argument. So you know, anyways, but I just think that I think that there's a uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see moving forward. It seems like there's getting to be a little bit more. Yeah, I don't want to say those guys treat each other pretty well in Park Fermi, all three of them. But I definitely think that there's an edge there where it's like they're. I think there's some people tired of the other guy, regardless of what they show. Mm-hmm. So let's get to World Superbike. 
Yeah, so we'll just we'll buzz through the results real quick because yeah. in race number one, it was Top Rack who wins over Scott Redding by six tenths of a second. Loris Baz rode himself into third place, his first of the weekend with Rinaldi Haslam. Garrett Gerloff ends up finishing sixth ahead of Bassani, Mercado, Laverty, Ponson, um, Bautista, Vandemark, Locatelli, and Johnny Ray, big non finishers in that race. In the Super Pole race, it was Vandemark who wins in the wet. It was a great performance. He had to work his way up to the front, and then checked out over Redding, who looked good. Baz ends up third again over Locatelli Bautista in the rain. Top Rack ends up fading to sixth. He did not look good. He looked like the old Top Rack in the rain. <clears throat> Bassani, Gerloff in eighth. Laverty, Vinales, Mercado. Uh, how, do you pronounce, how do you pronounce his name? It's not Cavalieri or something like Cavallari, that? Cavallari, yeah, I think Cavallari. Folger, Rabat. Um, so when we get into... The other race, race number two, the first, the, the second featured like race on Sunday. <clears throat> this is where my problems really start, right? And that's going to be Johnny Ray winning, Redding, Bacatelli, and Baz. And I'm going to start coughing, so take it from there. Yeah, well, I know what your problem is, is the whole Baz um, it, situation there with Batista at the end. Um, you know, I there's <laughs> it was actually really funny. I'm up there in the media center, like I said, after the races and – uh, I see, I see Johnny and and um, Redding and Baz. All three of those guys, they're kind of going from one group of media to the next group of media, and they're all doing the switch, right? And I'm sitting there, and those guys. And I talked to I talked to Loris for probably I don't know ten minutes after that, after he got done, and um, he was just he was just so happy. I mean, he was just like this. It, it was a great time. He was very very mellow. Loris is a pretty chill dude, so. He was very much like, man, it's just, it's so nice being over here. It's so nice racing. The two of the favorite tracks that he's got um, around the world are Jerez and Port Mile. And he's like, oh, it's just great. The weather couldn't have been more perfect. I mean, and to come in there and just kind of take the place of Davis for those three rounds or two rounds and do as well as he did. I mean, the guy finished all five races, Greg, uh, with the exception of the second race at Jerez. Um, he, there was some tire stuff there that he just wasn't used to because he hadn't, he hadn't uh, experienced that this year. So, he was happy, but probably within about three or four minutes of him leaving, I can see Batista walking in, and man, you could just tell he had the shitties. He was not happy, and he's showing everybody his phone, which is the replay of the race. And you know, when you look at it, uh, when you look at what had happened there again, this is where race control—they're just continuing to set this precedence of of. Ooh, it's it's just down to opinion, isn't it? It's down to an opinion of um, you want guys racing close. You want guys racing tight. Sometimes contact will be made. Could Loris have kept the bike turning to the left? Maybe. There was a lot of room for him to pick the bike up underneath. There was a lot of room for Batista to, to pick his bike up too. I can see the side of both arguments as far as who was right and who was wrong. But at the end of the day, they're, it's the last lap of a race. They're both going after it any more than... Juan Mir tapping Miller. I mean, Juan Mir has been stuck behind that Ducati the whole race on a, that Ducati's so fast. It's a joke. And yep. so those guys are primed up to get teed up in corners because these guys have to figure out a way to get past in order to get away from them. I'm not saying, I don't think there's any rider that goes into a race with the idea of I'm going to do everything I can, including punting people out of the way to go to the front. I don't think anybody goes out there looking for contact. But if race direction is going to continue to just keep getting involved, these guys aren't going to want to race. They're not going to want to get close. 
My yeah, which which is why all these tech, technical regulations are in place to make bikes equal is because they want racing. And when they get it yeah. and there's contact, it's like, yeah. oh, bad, bad. All I'm saying is this. It's it's very difficult, in my opinion, to erase immediate reactions, the natural reaction that someone has from the moment. That reaction oftentimes will tell you what that person's thinking. My opinion is Top Rack was pass, was past Bautista. When they collided, the first thing Baz did was turn around and look like yep. what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, his eyes were looking up the track and dude, whatever, he was looking you know? up the track. He was yeah. turned. He was a half a bike length ahead. He was he was in front, like or a quarter bike length in front. I mean, I watched it three or four times. I haven't watched it twenty times. I haven't watched it in slow mo because I just think when you watch things in slow motion, it creates a perspective that's unreal. You got to watch it in real time. Yeah, we don't have a great shot. We don't have a wide shot that zooms in. It's you know whatever. It, it's the shot we have. And I just think when that happened, I go, oh, that stinks for Bautista. It did. But that's a, but that's a racing incident. That should never, in my opinion, <sighs> be decided after the fact. I'm sorry. I, I was just, I know that it sounds I, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Baz fanboy. but no, you're not. And I think that I was laughing because I'm like, well, when Skultz and Cam and all the other guys see this, they're going to be like, well, that's how we get raced over here too. Um, I mean, Jason, just think about this. What's one of the greatest passes that you can remember in MotoGP history? Well, Laguna Seca with Laguna with Seca and Stoner. And what people forget about that race is that Stoner crashed on his own in turn 11 by himself. Yeah. He got into turn 11 too deep. He ran off the track into the gravel and tipped over. He still finished second in that race, if you remember. Yeah. And and his that result that weekend was Stoner, for all intents and purposes, was going to win that race by 20 seconds. If you remember, he dominated the weekend. And Rossi had a plan to make it impossible for Stoner to get away and was throwing the kitchen sink at him. And as a when you look at it from a fan's perspective, I'm sure everybody was happy that there was an actual race. And Stoner, I saw something in Europe, just this trip, where Stoner came and said that race taught him more and created a created him to look at things differently, and be, and he was better after that race at Laguna Seca with Ross. And my point is, with the current climate we have, that race doesn't exist. The thing I it the, doesn't exist because yeah. race control comes in and says, "Sorry, he got off into the green paint. We're changing the results. It doesn't matter." And then that race doesn't become legendary. And it was race. historic. You know the one that you <clears throat> that nobody talks about. I mean, nobody ever talks about. And YouTube this, everybody out there. You know, all two or three of our listeners. If you're listening, yeah, 120, listen, 100, listen hour to this. 25 in. Um, go go look at Lars Caparossi and Tetsuya Harada at the end of, God, I wish I could remember the year. 250 Grand Prix World Championship, two corners from the end of the track. I don't even remember. I don't think they ever went back there. But there's a right left coming onto the front straightaway. And Caparossi <laughs> has to beat Harada to win the championship. Okay. Mm-hmm. Caparossi, full boat just cleans Harada out. Like comes from eight bike lengths back and just doesn't let, just lets the brakes off and cleans Harada out. Caparossi wins or finishes second in the race. Harada's off in the gravel, doesn't win the championship. They give it to Caparossi. I mean, I know we've come a long way since. I know we have. But now all these races are going to be known for is race direction got involved and did this race direction got involved and did that. Well, they're not even going to be memorable races anymore. They're not. There are no memorable races. They just aren't memorable. Because and you know, the fact that someone made a pass and did this and that, but the re- result gets taken away that you, when, once you hear that Baz doesn't get on the podium, doesn't do the hat trick that weekend and an amazing ride that he had, then that, you know, in five years from now, you're not going to remember that. Let me ask you a question. 
<clears throat> we we talked about this last week about the Moto E race between Agurta and Jordi Torres, right? Mm, yeah. If Torres doesn't crash, what do they do? Exactly. What do they do? Torres fell over. So Jack Miller made a great point was that Dominic Agurta got docked 38 seconds. Where does that come from? Where gonna, did that come from? What, we're going to dock him 38 seconds. Right. That's, but Juan Mir ran into Jack. So, but Jack ended up keeping the bike upright. And so they dropped Mir a position, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If Jack had crashed. What would they do with Mir? Are they going to give him a 38 second penalty? I don't, where did that come from? Like, I, and, that, and sh- that, that, the problem with that is, Jay, is that sounds subjective to me. It's insane. That's ice racing. It's, it's or, I'm it's, sorry. I mean, ice skating. Ice That's yeah, freaking yeah, ice skating. Yeah. And I hate ice skating. Oh, you ice skate lovers out there. Greg hates you. There you go. No, Start I, the, I, the I, I admire the Greg athletes. White is Greg I, White at? Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Very nice. Look, what I'm saying is, is, is ice skating competitions, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. You don't I like admire the, the athletes. I admire the, the dedication scoring. and all that stuff. What I don't like is the scoring, the subjectiveness of it, the Oh, the outfit was shinier than the last person, or but that's whatever. the thing is, it's you're, you've gotten to this point where the sport that we love, where it's like race direction gets involved in everything. So, look, my takeaways from the weekend: we have a championship again because at 45 points going into race number two on Sunday, it didn't look like we did. And I think that when you look at it, all I kept on thinking to myself in that very first race Saturday is just how relentless Top Rack is. I just love it. I just think he's he's absolutely on it. He's relentless. Johnny had pace all weekend long but he couldn't get away from those guys at the start. Regardless of what anybody wants to say, if you can't watch that TV and be objective enough to go, yep, the Ducati and the Yamaha are definitely faster than the Cowie. One of my very close friends over there, Andrew Pitt did a tweet saying that, um, that the Yamaha is the slowest bike on the grid. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not sure about that because the Cowie, if you watch it, he had no chance against those guys on the front straightaway, zero, zero chance. Um, but that's not saying that Redding and Topper, they're, they're um, I mean, they're all three of those guys are incredible to watch. Um, and but, but hold on, by the way, if you didn't see it on the last race, we talked about it earlier. Top rack DNF that race. Yes. Scored zero points because his yes. front fender, it didn't fall off. It got like swallowed got by like the front tire off, and at, yeah. at lean angle. It got caught underneath the front tire or for a moment and then crashed him out in such a gnarly part of the track oh, coming boy. up over the brow of that <clears throat> hill last yeah. corner, which is where we saw Johnny make his mistake. Johnny on Saturday took the lead, was pushing, went up over the top of that hill, fell. And then in Sunday's race, uh, the Super Bowl race, he fell uh, on the second lap after taking the lead in those half wet, half dry conditions. Um, and so when you look at it, it was like, uh, the three, the, the two guys, the title contenders both made their mistakes on the weekend. There wasn't really a mistake made by top rack and the, ex- and the exception that his fender did cause his crash, but the championship now is 25 points, um, going into the final two rounds. But even those rounds are just full of controversy right now because getting into Argentina, there's like no flights, there's no hotels, there's no, so all, everybody was there going, I don't even know how we're going to do this race in Argentina, which is like next week. Really? And, and then Indonesia is even worse. So everybody's like, what's going on with the Indonesia round? Don't really know there. So it, it's, it's hard to tell, but the two title contenders, I got to play golf with Johnny while I was down there is, and it was just so chill, just such an easy guy to play and hang out with and yeah, kind of chill out with. I hung out in the KRT hospitality all weekend long. And those people over there were amazing to me and talked to Pierre Reba a ton. Um, played golf with him too, actually, even though he was in the group behind me. Um, How's Garrett doing, dude? Garrett's actually, 
you know, how's he doing? Uh, there's two ways of answering that. Um, he's pretty down on himself. I think he's a little bit, he, there's a lot of things that took some things out of his sales. Garrett's race pace is amazing. It's just those first three, four laps right now that are just a little bit sketchy for him being in and around people. I think he's just trying to be on his best behavior. So there's a lot of frustration there right now, but Garrett's got pace. I had a great dinner with him in Jerez, talked with him a fair bit in Portimao. I just kind of left him alone there. Um, more than anything. I just wanted him to know that there's a guy from over here that was in the paddock if he needed anybody just to run things by or just talk about. So um, I didn't. I don't really know Garrett that well, but I got to know him a little bit more on this trip. But um, but dude, if you look at his pace, after when everything kind of settles down and he can start going, his race pace is podium race pace. Um, but but the incidents that he had at the beginning of the year were pretty high profile. So and some of those were. Maybe not for me to talk about because I just I discussed those with him. Some of the thoughts that went through. No, his that's fine. I that. just I saw that you know there was a post and his crew chief is and Garrett. Mm-hmm. They're no longer going to be working together. I don't know when that starts. And I talked I to Les immediately. I talked, I talked to Les at Jerez, and I mean, for all intents and purposes, he loves Garrett, and <clears throat> and and it, it can't be a bike setup thing because Garrett's always fast. He's fast. I mean, he was second quickest on Saturday. I think he was, I think he was third overall. It was sad because I went over there with Alex Lowe's and, and Alex, obviously he got taken out at Catalonia and then tried to ride at Jerez. And we talked about that last week. And then he tried to ride at Portimao and was extremely fast. Like he was so fast, fast, fast. And then the team actually decided more there that, Hey, let's save you and make sure that you're healthy for the final two rounds. As opposed to if you keep on straining these fractures in your hand, because he had a fracture, he had some, he had some fractures in his hand and his, in his throttle hand of all things. So he was actually having trouble going from throttle to the brake. Mm. Um, and so even at, to Alex's credit, he was more worried about the guys around him when he was racing. And I think that it came down to the point where he hadn't really put a lot of long race runs together in practice. So the team were a little concerned about it's one thing to be able to do four or five laps in a row as opposed to 20. And so I think what they did before the weekend started was let's, let's make sure Alex is in good form right now and he's riding great. They had a test at Portimao about six or eight weeks ago where they actually found something on the bike that has really helped him to make that step. And him and Johnny work really well together. Like it was, it was interesting being on this trip because like Alex was basically told me, he's like this, like me and Johnny right now, we get along so great. And I think Johnny's now realized what Yamaha has done by having the riders working together. I mean, there's a team over there. Yamaha has worked so well together to take one guy down. That's what they've done. They're like, yeah, it's, it's not one-on-one. It's like, what do we got to do to get Locatelli up to speed? If Garrett comes into any kind of form, he is a, he's a podium contender. So you legitimately have three guys there that are trying to take one guy down. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, Put and points think, in between you and him, it's simple as that. And so basically what it is now is it's like, <laughs> I think Kawasaki's gone. Well, we've got to do everything we can to get to to get our two guys together so that maybe one could help the other guy too because Alex taking points off Yamaha guys is obviously going to help uh, Johnny if he could somehow get up there with Top Rack and so on and so forth. So when you look at it, um, I think Kawasaki's view on it was we've got two races to go. This is prior to Saturday's race. It was like... I mean, their decision looks like it's going to be a good one. It's going to pay off. Well, Alex, like I said, he's in good form. Uh, he's home resting. And um, anyways, it, it, it's one of those deals where if he can um, if he can just get himself healthy. He's been unhealthy all year. Like literally from the race, uh, the start of the season, he's had injuries that he's been dealing with uh, that have really set him on his back foot. Um, and and But he's 
obviously he's riding really well. So, but I'll tell you a couple of my takeaways when we look at this uh, World Superbike um, being there trackside. Um, Batista to me, I've talked about him and how 19 he did what he did in the championship. I watched him pretty closely over these two weekends. That guy rides hard. I mean, when I sat and I watched trackside at the two places that I went, it was visible to me how much this guy is still trying, even though he's got his deal set up for next year. This guy, there was like, like the, like my respect level went up for Batista. Like it really did. Um, I, I feel like the mistakes that he made, like in race one, he crashed. If you remember, he was in third coming to the line and he fell in yes. that last corner. Yeah. He was so violent out of the the last two rights there. I went and it was visible to me, him coming out of the second to last right, how aggressive he was. It didn't surprise me that he fell in the last corner, if I'm being honest. He didn't need to. He could have gone up over the brow of that hill and held Loris off. To me, that was a racecraft mistake that he made. I, I feel like Loris wasn't going to draft by him before the start finish line there because it's so early out of the last corner that it, I don't think Baz would have done anything. Plus the but, size difference. The Ducati Batista, was kind of on par with 100%. the Honda. Yeah, but Batista made a mistake there. The second race where him and Baz actually collided on race two on Sunday, um, that is one of those things where he made a, he made a super clean pass. I could actually see his side of things a little bit. But it is the last lap of a race, and it is going to be close racing, and it is one of those things where, or second to last lap, whatever it was, um, you, you've got to kind of know that the guy is going to try to turn back up underneath you. So be prepared for that. Um, so, but I had a I had a huge level of respect gained for him, and I'm going to tell you the other guy. This is going to surprise you, and I really wanted to go talk to this guy, Christoph Bonson. No, 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 no. Just checking. No, but you'd guess it if you if if you actually looked at a rundown of people. But I'll tell you another kid who rides hard, Greg, is Mercado. Taddy, Taddy Mercado. You didn't get to talk to Taddy? You didn't I talk did to him? It. And I wish uh, I would have. I love Taddy, dude. I, and I dude. just wish I would have gone and talked to him. I saw him <clears throat> yeah. a couple times where I'm like, I wanted to go over and say hi. I kind of waved to him once he waved back to me. Um, but he's on that privateer Honda over there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the kid qualified like... I want to say he was 11th at Jerez. He ran inside the top 10 in one of the races at Portimao. Uh, I think he out-qualified. No, I don't think he out Was it? In one of the sessions, he was quicker than both the Hondas. I think it might have been the second session Friday. He was actually like ninth quickest or eighth quickest. It was something like that. I know the guys went pretty good. I might be getting my races mixed up. Haslam rides incredibly hard. The Honda right now, I don't think is that far away. I think... All the all the rumors are it's going to be Lekawona on that bike next year um, with uh, and I've just drawn a blank because I do know who Vierge. It's not Leon, but it it's was Chavi um, Vierge, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> all the rumors right now are that those are going to be the two riders on the Honda um, next year. But that bike is close. I don't think it's that far away. I, I honestly think that the Honda is closer than the BMW right now um, in performance. I think that um, Lekawona. Yeah, I mean. I, it's to be determined to see what he does, but he obviously he's shown some great speed in MotoGP over the last sort of five rounds. Um, although he wasn't really anywhere to be seen at Coda. Yeah, Coda's Coda, right? Yeah, I'm not really even looking at that race. Honestly, no, but but Lekawona could be really really good. So mm-hmm. um, we'll see. We'll see what what happens over there. But Batista and Mercado really left me with. Um, like they, they like when I got on the plane yesterday morning, I was like, oh, you know, thinking about the podcast. Like those two guys really impressed me. 
That's good. Thanks for the insight, dude. So that'll pretty much do it for this podcast. Look ahead of the weekend's race calendar. Jason mentioned it before. World Endurance, eight hours at most. AMA Pro Flat Track and Super Hooligans are in Charlotte at the Speedway, just outside the Speedway on Friday. Although there's a 70% chance of rain Uh during the day. So there's a big chance that that event might be canceled. And there's no, I know that for a fact there's no makeup days after because they're at the Speedway sharing resources with NASCAR. And NASCAR has a full docket on Saturday and on Sunday. So. That that's I don't know if that would get rescheduled or if they would just call it a championship. I don't know. But anyway, that's going to happen. Um, also, AMA Pro Hill Climb is in Oregonia, Ohio. If you're in the area, I'm telling you, it's a legendary event. Go check out AMA Pro Hill Climb. You'll enjoy yourself. GNCC is in Newburgh, West Virginia. Enduro Cross is in Reno, Nevada. Heron Hound visits Lovelock, Nevada. FIM World Trials in England. FIM Motocross in France. So there you go. Jason Pridmore, so glad to have you back in the States. Love it. Yeah, And I'm sure that there's more insight going to be built here on this podcast. Um, I hope that you you gathered some numbers so we can start interviewing people for the podcast and and really start to bolster the the, uh, Patreon stuff for people. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, you know, looking back on my trip, Greg, it was one of those trips that was just unbelievable for me. being over in that paddock was funny. You made the joke about me kind of uh, representing Moto America a little bit over there. And mm-hmm. there was people that I just didn't really even know that well that were coming up to me um, and talking to me about Moto America. And I think a lot of that was because, uh, you know, they probably see our faces on TV um, and, and and on the, the app. Moto America seems to me like everybody's got their eye on it over here. <clears throat> if Baz was to if Baz was to somehow get an opportunity to stay in world Superbike, And if he did choose to do that, there's a list of riders that I'm sure that you could choose from over there that would love to come over here and take his place. Um, there's a lot of people that still feel like America's a great place to, to end up and go. And I got, I got a lot of questions about that while I was over there. So I'm excited. The fact that Moto America is kind of back on the, the map a little bit over here, uh, our series, let's just put it that way. What America's allowed it to where America's back in the series, uh, as far as, um, people's looking, looking at what America is doing. So I had a blast. I'm looking forward to going over there more. Um, and, um, yeah, world Superbike was a lot of fun. So thanks everybody for listening. G dub. We'll do it again next week.